Hi, and welcome to the third season of the Duck Industry Podcast, bringing you personal and truthful conversations. We acknowledge that the cultural establishment of which we are part still needs to undergo a fundamental transformation of true inclusivity. The Duck Industry Podcast is meant as a source of inspiration to envision a different way, a better way. We want to evolve together and dedicate ourselves to the work we have done so far and are committed to practicing further. We believe the future of this field lies in the power of the wide range of experiences, aesthetics, storytelling and perspectives that you all have to offer. It's a great joy to welcome back our glorious partners and curators, the POC2 Programmers of Color Collective and the What's Up With Dogs podcast. We are also happy to introduce new collaborators, our colleagues from Kinopravda Institute from Serbia, Belgrade. We look much forward to highlighting and celebrating the ideas, themes and discussions our colleagues will bring to this. Duck Industry is funded by Creative Europe, the City of Leipzig, BKM and MDM. We thank our partners and supporters for their contribution. Enjoy! Thank you all for listening and being with us virtually. Uh, we're really happy to engage in this discussion. Many thanks to Doc Leipzig. Many thanks to the POC curatorial group. And uh, many thanks to the institution that I represent, which is Kino Pravda Institute in Belgrade, Serbia. Uh, my name is Greg DeCure. I will be the host and the moderator, even though I would like to consider this a decentralized conversation. Uh, a conversation about curating and particularly the culture of film curating. Uh, that's a, a number of key words that I'm really excited to get into with, with our wonderful guests that we have today. So again, just to give you a quick introduction to who I am, uh, I'm an independent curator and writer that has been living and working in Belgrade, Serbia for many years. Uh, I'm involved with a number of in institutions uh, through this particular program and in this in this context, I'm representing Kino Pravda Institute, uh, which is a, a new film institute that I've co-founded and I'm the artistic director for, uh, which was created in homage to the life and work of our recently deceased Professor Vlada Petrovic, who was the, the founding curator and longtime film professor at Harvard Film Archive at Harvard University. Um, so what we're doing with Kino Pravda Institute is a number of initiatives related to publishing, organizing programs, and also audio programs. And this particular conversation is in the framework of an ongoing audio series that we have called Kinesthesia, uh, which we've been doing live on our Telegram channel. And these are conversations with people that I consider the engines of film culture, the curators, the writers, the archivists, the organizers, those that are sort of pushing film culture and video cultures forward in numerous exciting ways, whether through exhibitions, whether through publishing, uh, so on and so forth. So on that note, I'm really happy to welcome two uh, wonderful engines and, and, and sort of pieces of this beautiful machine that we call international film culture. And I will give brief introductions to them and, and, and uh, read their bios before I, I ask them to, to say hello to you all. So first of all, we have Alia Ayman, who is, uh, she's making and curating films and videos. She's living and working between Cairo and New York City. 
And Alia is the co-founder of Zalia, which is an art house cinema in Cairo. And she is also a doctoral candidate in social cultural anthropology at New York University. She's a programming consultant for the Berlinale Forum, for IDFA, which is International Documentary Film Fest in Amsterdam. You know that if you're a Doc Leipzig audience member and also Black Star Film Festival. She's previously curated programs for Images Festival in Toronto, for the Arab Women Film Festival in Brazil, for Flaherty NYC, and the Arsenal Institute for Film and Video in Berlin, among others. Ali is a wonderful colleague and, and friend and collaborator. We've done some amazing things in the past and I'm looking forward to, to doing more amazing things in the future. Thank you so much for being with us, Ali. Thank you so much for having me, Greg, and thank you to uh, Doc Leipzig for this initiative. It's, uh, I'm really, really looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, and I would also like to introduce our, our second guest. That is Matthew Barrington. Happy to introduce Matthew. He is a researcher and curator based in London. He's currently working on his PhD at Birkbeck College in London, and he's running the Birkbeck Institute for the Moving Image. He's also a curator of cinema at the Barbican Center and he's a programmer for SA Film Festival. Uh, I met Matthew uh, many, many years ago. It might've been even before we were at the Flaherty together. We'll, we'll talk about the Flaherty maybe later. Um, but Matthew is you know, doing wonderful work and also very much excited to be in conversation with you and looking forward to doing great things with you also in the future, Matthew. So thank you for being here also. All right, so let's dive right into it. This is gonna be an informal conversation and I would very much love for it to be a conversation rather than sort of a, a question and answer session. So I'm looking forward to, to sort of moving the conversation forward with you all in ways that, that feel generative and uh, that sort of follow the flow of just how we're feeling and, and what we're thinking. But before we get into maybe more broader and um, uh, more urgent questions in terms of this field that we're in curating, right? And in terms of the culture of what we're doing, I would be curious to hear from both of you about what you're working on right now. Sort of what are your, what are your concerns and, and obsessions and, and interests in terms of the work that you're doing like actually right now, if you can share any tidbits of projects or anything. I'm, I'm happy to go just to speak briefly. Um, so I can't see anyone, so it's difficult to see who's, who's ready to jump in. But um, yeah, one of the things I've been working on, uh, which is probably going to be taking place in October next year, is a kind of a kind of program around um, the Haitian Revolution and the legacies of Haitian Revolution. During lockdown, I was really, I really got into reading uh, C.L.R. James' Black Jacobins and just looking at a lot of really interesting texts that have been written around this subject. And I wanted to kind of like do something at Barbican Centre in London where we do have access to lots of really interesting professors and historians and kind of bring together a kind of uh, writers, researchers coming from, you know, outside of cinema and build together a programme looking at some kind of uh, responses because what's interesting about this in a way is that there's a big absence around this subject in cinema there there are some objects, some flawed objects, but as a kind of you know, if we think about the importance of this this, this event it's something which is really underrepresented in cinema and there's obviously been a few notable unmade projects as well. So that's what I've been looking at, uh, thinking about doing and working on for, for, for next year in a nutshell. And it's been, you know, it's been interesting. It's always nice to research the research stage. Very cool to hear. Alia, what do you got going on right now that you can share with us? Uh, Matthew, this is fascinating. Please keep me posted. It sounds like a wonderful program. Um, 
I'm right now. I started watching films for um, for Berlin for the forum. Uh, so I'm doing that. Um, and as a personal project, I've been working on this retrospective for. Um, it's I've never really done a retrospective for an actress before. So this will be my first one, and I've been wanting to do it since we started Zawiya in 2014. And it's a retrospective for this Egyptian actress um, who I love, uh, Saad Hosni. Um, and yeah, I've been very um, occupied right now with the um, you know politics of archives and, and film archives. And who gets to preserve films and why, because most of the copies that I'm looking for for this uh, retrospective are not there. And when they're there, they're not owned by Egypt, uh, although she is, all her films were Egyptian productions. Uh, so I'm currently uh, really occupied, preoccupied with this, uh, with these questions, you know, who gets to preserve cinematic heritage and who has access to it and why, and what do we as curators or exhibitors do when we have to collaborate with entities we don't necessarily want to collaborate with in order to get, you know, copies of films that are owned by our countries. So yeah, so that's, uh, that's where I'm at right now. Yeah, that's really amazing. So Matthew, this work that you're doing on the Haitian Revolution and CLR James, yeah, really excited to hear what that's going to sort of result in and, and how you're approaching that. And Alia, I can, I can say that uh, I love this idea of a retrospective dedicated to a, an actor uh, or actress. Uh, I haven't had that chance to, to do something focused on an actor, actress, or cinematographer, or, or a technician, maybe an editor. So that's a, a fascinating method of working that I've always really wanted to, to explore and, and experiment with. So I hope that opportunity will come for me soon, but that's really, really exciting to hear that you're working on that. So maybe this is a, a good way to slide into the next question that I, that I wanted to put to us on the floor uh, as we talk about these projects that you're involved with. Um, what are the important habits or practices that serve you as a curator? So like when you're preparing a show or even when you're pitching a show, right? Um, you both, I think, have, have deep experience working as what I would consider an independent curator, somebody that's not necessarily tied to an institution for all the work that they do. So what are some of those habits and practices that, that you rely on that sort of sustain you uh, as you're doing this work and, and preparing these amazing programs? Uh, feel free for, for either of you to, to jump in on that question. For me, I think um, collaborating, because even though, again, I think that you know, you're right in that um, I do kind of see myself as an independent figure, even when I am working for an institution, and particularly when I have access to some of the benefits of being an institution, I think I want to bring people in because ultimately, particularly in, in London, and this is obviously a more general thing, I think a lot of these institutions are really flawed objects, really, and there's always a kind of politics as to who's allowed to enter these spaces. So I always try to kind of, you know, be as kind of broad and open things up as wide as possible and trying to include as many different kind of um, figures when I'm working on certain projects because A, you know, sharing knowledge is, is a pretty excellent um, thing that we are able to do but also I think it just kind of makes these things much more kind of, I don't know, 
um, fruitful really to have more kind of like architects at the very early stages and also at a really practical level as well I mean in London you know a really big issue as well is that there's like there is so much happening as well really and I think like when you're working in these kind of different kind of collaborations as well we're able to kind of like build different networks and bring different audiences together so when I am trying to collaborate I'm often trying to collaborate with people who are not necessarily doing the exact same thing as myself try and look at different kinds of like-minded figures working in maybe academia or working in I don't know different kind of art space so that we're able to connect things and connect the events to more than just the usual kind of you know figures who come to these things so that's the thing that I think is I'm always kind of thinking about really is, is, is collaboration as, as widely as, as possible ultimately. Um, I think I, I definitely agree with you, Matthew. Uh, collaboration is um, not only important, I think it's essential for the work we do. And yeah, I don't think I've ever really worked on a program uh, anywhere without at least thinking with others if I'm not institutionally collaborating with others. And I think for, for me, one of the things I enjoy the most about the work we do is that I feel like there's a, something intuitive, you know, like when you're working on a program and then you're not thinking about a particular film and then you bump into someone who tells you something and it takes you somewhere else and then you find the perfect film for your program. Like these like very uh, sort of these chance encounters uh, for me have always served me very well. Like they were like finding that missing link in a program has always happened like that with me. Um, so I feel like there's something intuitive almost in the process that I really appreciate. And I can't really describe it, but I think it informs a lot of the work I do and also um, informs many of the friendships that I have in this, uh, in this field. Yeah, so collaboration, I mean, we can stay with that word for a moment. It's really an important word. Uh, I agree with everything both of you said. And also for me, collaboration is, is front and center on my mind because right at the moment, uh, I'm, I'm sort of playing around with the notion uh, with a few other colleagues that I'm working with about forming a curatorial sort of endeavor or project that is somehow or, or some way relating to the idea of a collective and what that means for actually collaborating on, on projects as curators. I mean, we take it for granted that we collaborate, right? We collaborate with institutions. We collaborate if we're working on a selection commission, for example, maybe at a film festival. Uh, we're collaborating with artists. We can't do what we do without collaborating. In some ways, you know, curating is, is joining things at the seams, right? It's sort of being that, that bridge between different creativities, different cultures, different countries. So I'm thinking about that now in terms of what does collaboration mean, I guess, on a more conceptual level or, or maybe a more theoretical level in terms of how would we collectively collaborate? Uh, how would we sort of function with the principles of the film collective, for example, and to, to place that into the, into the circle of, of film curators? So collaboration is really on my mind. Um, that being said, collaboration, Talk a little bit about that. And uh, you told us a little bit about some of the cultures that you're sort of representing uh, with this recent work that you're involved in and these different projects that you're, that you're part of or that you're generating. So I, I wanna come to this question, which is really the, the topic of, of concern for us today. I wanna enter it now and then sort of maybe come back to it later because I think it's too big to just 
leave for the end or just to kind of hit it and, and go away. So I would love to come back to it, but maybe we can, we can start right now with this idea of culture. Um, I'm interested and I don't have an answer for this. I wanted to explore it with you, not that we're under any pressure uh, or, or any sort of deadline to figure out an answer for it, but how do you feel about that word culture? I'm, I'm really concerned with how does culture relate to curating? And I don't just mean representing cultures uh, or, or working with different cultures or ideas of sort of intercultural this or that. But I guess, is there a culture of curating? And, and if there is, how would we begin to define it? Or, or at least how does it sort of work itself through, through us? And, and, and how do we sort of relate to this idea? Um, again, I would love to come back to that, but maybe we can have some initial ideas on, on culture and, and the culture of curating. I think there is definitely... Uh, a culture of curating. There's a sense of affinity that we all have towards each other somehow because we're all um, working within the same infrastructure, more or less, whether it's festivals, galleries, art cinemas, museums, you know, so we're all sort of part of this economy even. And I think um, I think that the, the, the concept of like a culture of curating comes from this broader notion of film culture, right? Like as something uh, that is part of, but also different than film industry. And then this has like, this will take us to places where, you know, we're, we're gonna talk about how, I don't know, festivals, academic departments for film, elevated cinema, quote unquote, elevated cinema from like, you know, a mass product to like a higher art that has like a culture around it. Um, and I think the figure of the film curator is part and parcel of that uh, infrastructure, I think. Um, so these are some thoughts to get us started, I guess. Curious to hear what you all think. Yeah, I mean, just, just following up, I mean, for me, it's interesting because it's something which is also both incredibly present and, and visible, but also kind of um, almost like ephemeral. So despite working occasionally in big institutions what is great is kind of like finding these networks which are international like looking for these kind of like these figures or these um collaborators or these kind of um co-conspirators that you have this affinity for and a kind of connection to and often it it, it is finding figures in different festivals internationally it's not necessarily going to be happening on your kind of doorstep but it's that kind of like, it may be initial frustration at a certain point for not having them in the say, I did a certain working environment, but being able to find this kind of culture and this kind of um, affinity across different spaces. And so for me, that's what is really interesting. And it's that kind of, um, that kind of like, uh, you know, quest really to kind of find and kind of, you know, and also, um, continue these relationships that you that you have with people and occasionally you know as at festivals you might only meet people for really kind of you know small moments but you know they're there and you know that like again there's a kind of figure there who you can kind of speak to and you just kind of get it and you can feel it kind of almost instantaneously when someone's kind of on that kind of like that kind of same kind of reference point as you and I think that to me that, that kind of culture again it's, it's difficult to almost completely uh, vocalized because sometimes it's a bit like uh, as I say ephemeral but for me that kind of like that kind of you know that legacy of a certain kind of approach to, to cinema and it's not about being um, kind of 
you know, elitist. It's just like an approach or understanding of, of what these things are, and it can be really can involve really different ideas of what cinema can be. But it's just finding those kind of those kind of figures. And for me, that's what's really you know exciting about kind of what we do and that kind of culture. Really, is the, these kind of people, these kind of films that kind of connect us ultimately. And uh, yeah, so that, that's what I hear when I hear culture because you know working for a, a big art center, culture is used all the time, and everyone has their own kind of idea. But often, it's quite easy to find yourself falling outside of some of these kind of um, big concepts, big institution-wide concepts, particularly in my current position in, in London at Barbican. So it's great to kind of, you know, be able to explore internationally through these kind of almost like smaller, different kind of figures, often uh, independent figures as well. So that's how I kind of see culture really and how we kind of fit in, in this kind of wide topography of, of figures working internationally across different spaces and, 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 uh, and continents. Yeah, that's beautiful to hear. And let me go back to Ali as something that you mentioned that I would like to, to bring back to the surface and, and explore a little bit more. You, you sort of hinted at academics and academia. Um, you're currently pursuing your doctoral degree at NYU. Uh, Matthew, you're currently pursuing your doctoral degree in Birkbeck and at the University of London. Also, Matthew, you're, you're deeply involved with SA Film Festival and also the Birkbeck Center for Moving Image. Um, I don't know if I would be correct to say that you came to curating through these academic endeavors. I can say for myself, I certainly came to curating through, through my academic work uh, when I was doing my doctoral studies and, and my, my doctoral research, the archive that I was literally researching in had a film festival sort of based around it, or I guess the archive was the core of that film festival, a festival called Alternative Film Video in, in Belgrade, Serbia, which is actually one of the oldest festivals for alternative avant-garde film and video in, in Europe. And I came to, to curating, working for this festival, literally from just being in the archive and doing academic research. So what I want to ask you both is academic culture. Let's stay with the word culture and sort of bring academics into it. Uh, is, is, that a, a, is that a useful influence, I guess, in, in your practice as a film curator? Is that a hindrance? How does sort of your, your, your sort of dual nature as an academic because I, you know, I, I also have this dual nature, you know, I, I wear the hat of an academic often, even though I have to take it off and put on other hats as, as part of my work as an independent, you know, cultural worker. But how does, how do academics and, and sort of this academic culture impact your curating and whether, whether you think that's a, um, a positive way or maybe a challenging way? Uh, I think, um, so I started uh, curating before I actually went to grad school uh, and I got to it by complete coincidence my friend Yusuf was like do you want to start a cinema I'm like yeah let's do it so that's how I became a curator um and then I started my MA and then later PhD and I think um something I forgot to say when you ask the initial question about tools that help us in our work I think I've always found um reading whether books or articles or even like random archival research or like reading old publications to be very um helpful in thinking not only about certain programs but about but about about cinema in general and about exhibition and what's a role in it and reception and that kind of thing so i think there's definitely overlap uh but again it depends on you know the kind of curating that you do. And I think it's important to, to differentiate between curating and programming for festivals because they're two different things. 
And I think, yeah, academic, the academic world helps in certain parts, but also there's something about being a, like a free agent, you know, and reading what you like and leaving what you don't like that is um, more, less restricted, I would say. So I don't know. I think my, my, my work at NYU has helped and informed my curatorial practice in some ways. Um, but I also think that it's not necessary at all for a film curator to be an academic or the other way around. Yeah, I mean, I think that for me, I think it's interesting what you're saying because I think there's often, well, obviously, there's no one fixed path, really. And um, I think that, well, for me, you know, I was I was at Birkbeck and Birkbeck has a cinema space and Birkbeck's, Birkbeck's location is you know, in a kind of, it's surrounded by universities. So it's in Bloomsbury, which has this kind of you know, literary history. We have next to us SOAS, the school of, uh, I think it's still called the School of Oriental and Asian Studies. I could be wrong. Um, then you have UCL. So we kind of in this kind of like surrounding space of, you know, academia. And so our space, our cinema space, we, we were lucky in that we had 60 millimeter, 35 millimeter DCP. And so we were able to show stuff, you know, nearly always for free and we're not you know we weren't it's nice to have lots of people there but we weren't dependent on having you know um a huge audience so it was quite freeing in kind of what you can do and not working in a commercial cinema working in a kind of university cinema means that if you need five hours to do something you have five hours you know because again that kind of symposium that conference like uh, approach to doing things can be really interesting and can be really useful and again in terms of bringing voices together there's kind of methods which are quite common in academia that maybe aren't so common in say uh running an art center say um so for me it was it was interesting and it was quite it was quite uh, a useful experience to kind of have the freedom to do lots of different kind of things and not have the burden of having to kind of you know convince you know, 60 people to pay £15 to come to an event, really. And so that kind of, that was quite useful. But I think, as, as you're both kind of saying, that there's a kind of degree of, um, there's different kinds of research. But yeah, there's, a, there's when preparing certain um, ideas or programmes, there is a kind of research which probably does relate a little bit to that kind of, you know, classical curating that you would be doing if you're curating, you know, exhibitions in the art world or the kind of research needed for you know, academic publications. So for me, I think they do kind of go hand in hand. But that being said, it's interesting how, say, at Barbican Centre, academia is almost a dirty word because, again, this is a very British, I think, phenomenon where there's a kind of weird suspicion of coming across as too elitist or too kind of, um, you know, too dense and so it's kind of a push and pull in a way because in one sense you know in one job without being too elitist about it you know we can kind of do anything really and be quite unabashed about this being a kind of you know serious academic subject but in another space you have to be really careful about how you present things so um yeah so for me it's a useful idea and it was as Greg said kind of how I kind of got into curating really but it's definitely like a push and pull those two kind of spaces, I think, at the moment for me. Yeah, and I think there is a general mistrust. I don't think this is, by far, this is not just a British thing or a Barbican thing. Um, I think there is a general 
I sort of feel the general mistrust in, in some cases with, with regards to the influence of academia and academics on film culture. For example, when we talk about visual arts or, or maybe more traditional visual arts or, or the fine arts world or the art world, um, it's much more common and accepted that curators uh, will pass through sort of the academic ringer, so to speak. You know, they'll, they'll have, a, it's expected that they'll have a, a master of arts um, or, or eventually a, a doctoral degree that can kind of sort of confer a, a deep body of knowledge in, in their discipline and, and what they're sort of researching and curating and how that plays into their writing. I just sort of feel that that academic rigor is more expected, whether that's sort of a, a, an outside view or not. I Sometimes I kind of have one foot in the art world and, and one foot out also. Whereas film to me and, and the film world is, is a bit more, I, I want to say egalitarian, but that's not the right word. Uh, I want to say definitely a, a a bit less academic in in how sort of the culture of, of film has developed and and I mean film studies as, as a discipline is is incredibly young. But Alia, you're not uh, you're not involved with film studies at the academy, so um, I don't know. That's just kind of my feeling. I don't I don't know if you you both agree or or again I guess we're back to this idea of of how does academic culture play out with film curating and is it a is it helpful or is it a hindrance? Greg, it's funny you say that um, because a couple of years ago, right, right before COVID, I was having uh, an existential crisis as most academics do. And I was considering, you know, leaving. And a friend of mine who's a curator, contemporary art curator, and she was like, you need to finish your uh, PhD because you're a curator and you need it. And I was like, no, you need it. I think I need to hide it because in the film world, I'm not sure... I always have this feeling um, that, uh, you know, academics are, people are, can be suspicious, as you said. Um, and I think, I think that's a very interesting thing to explore uh, as to why. Like, I have some guesses, and I think we all do. Um, but I also think this is somewhat changing. Um, it also depends, you know, the film world is huge, you know. Uh, depends on where you are, who you're working with, and what's your niche, basically. Uh, but yes, I totally agree with what you're saying. If I could also just jump in for a second, um, one of the interesting things, and you just mentioned it, Greg, for a second as well, is that, you know, the Barbican Centre, we are, you know, a multi-art centre, so we'll do projects with theatre or with music or with gallery, and actually it's interesting, and I understand, you know, an exhibition is you know borrowing paintings and it does you know quite a lot of work but it's interesting at the moment uh we're doing a project a program film program in response to an alice neil retrospective and so we've been working with the curator on that show and i would say that the kind of um the depth and the knowledge and the research that is required for doing say a retrospective in that kind of you know in the art space is again how I would imagine, how I would, not maybe not hope, but in envision how we would approach doing a you know a retrospective and I mean, Ali, what you're describing, I, sus I suspect that the amount of research and you know, kind of police work to kind of find prints as well is really similar, I think. But then, um, so I think there is interesting overlaps really, and I think that term curator as well, as a, as again Greg, you alluded to this being from being a young art form, it comes you know ultimately out of that kind of art sense really. So I think that kind of kind of trajectory, I think, 
overlaps again with how I kind of see this this culture that I'm in. And it, and it, that being said, it is a really good, it is a good thing that film, unlike say paint you know certain kinds of art, does still retain its status as a popular art form, which means that you do have there is a, there's a, there's a, there's something said about that ultimately, and that does mean that there might be a certain push and pull in terms of you know trying to engage with this kind of mythical popular audience but there's something that's still interesting about film existing as a, as a popular medium which means that you know uh when i speak to people who aren't in this space they, they often are trying to be confused as to what i do but i think that it's really interesting that it exists still as a popular medium and that's something which you know should be celebrated despite all of the extra issues that, that those those kind of things relate to yeah, and the popularity of film, uh, meaning its sort of status as, as a popular uh, art form or, or in some ways a, a piece of pop culture or sort of an element of pop culture, I think relates to, to sort of institutions and, and career prospects, which is what I want to talk about. Ali, you sort of hinted at it, um, this sort of crisis uh, that many of us have, in, whether we're in the academic world or, or whatever, in terms of our career prospects, what are we doing, and you know how are we going to to find work? Quite quite literally, um, you know, film. I, I would say film curating as as a viable profession is also fairly young, just like film studies as an academic discipline is relatively young, and just like film as an art form is relatively young in the larger scheme of, of the history of visual arts. So, how do you feel? How do both of you feel? Um, about the career prospects, about your career prospects, our career prospects in this field of quote unquote film curating, which uh, I was recently at a, at a wonderful symposium at iFilm Institute, uh, iFilm Museum in Amsterdam, where we dealt with sort of futures um, of, of curating and what we do and, and a filmmaker, a very prominent filmmaker that I was on stage with, trying to do a Q&A with and, and sort of a discussion with at one point turned to me and said, what is a film curator even? I don't even know what you're talking about. So for some people, that's a very unreal career or prospect. But I wanted to, to ask you both, how do you feel about uh, the work that we do as work, whether related to academic work or not, uh, the prospects of, of doing this work full-time or, or part-time or independently? Is it always already precarious in terms of the line of work? Um, and I know that's something that's on a lot of people's minds also in terms of film festivals in specific, but also museums and other arts institutions. Who's doing the work? Uh, is the work being fairly remunerated? So on and so forth. These are broad questions, but I would love to hear some thoughts from you both. Yeah, it's, um, I think this is definitely one of the most, most important and less talked about aspects of the work we do. Uh, I was recently uh, mentoring uh, programming fellows at, um, um, at the Athena Film Festival in in Bard, uh, sorry, in Barnard, um, and they want to be film programmers and they want to curate. And the first thing that I said to them was, "Okay, nobody talks about the money. You need to understand how this works." And they had no idea because it looks glamorous and fancy from the outside, and it also seems like oh, what do you do? I watched films for a living kind of situation. And so, but then when you look, when you actually go deeper uh, into this economy of film curating, it's very, not only is it precarious, it's also severely underpaid. Um, and 
many of the people who do it have other sources of support, whether it's another job or family or something else that they're banking on, basically. And I think one of the things that I would really, that now I'm really trying to do whenever I find myself in this situation where somebody, where like somebody who's younger is asking me for, you know, advice or exploring this career as a, as an option, I feel like it's really important for us to talk about that for those who are coming into this job to know what they're getting into. I personally had no idea what I was getting into. I wouldn't change a thing, but it's um, certainly good to know. And the, precar the, the precarious nature of the work, I think, extends to many festival workers, many cultural workers in general, and specifically artists and filmmakers. They're not in a better place either. So it's something... It's a, it's a condition that has marked this world in general. And I'm not sure how we can deal with it, but I really think we should somehow work together and, and find ways to, to, to deal with that. Yeah, I mean, thank you, Yali. That was a really interesting response. And I think, um, yeah, it's a really big question. I would say two things. One thing is that it's interesting because, again, going back to academia, in the last five years... Um, there's been a, a, low, a huge number of courses on film curation and um, and it's kind of taught really as a research as a research kind of um, practice but it's also kind of framed as like a, a practical um, skill you can learn and you can do a degree or a, or a master say in film programming for a year and then you know it, it is kind of also kind of sold as a do this and you can get into film programming and I you know I do teach on some of these courses but it's real it's a real problem because actually that isn't that's almost impossible ultimately and actually like you know when I am teaching on the course I'm teaching you know independent skills to kind of frame you as an independent figure and talking about where you can find pots of money to you know uh live and to kind of like find spaces to to work with but it's it's quite a strange phenomena in terms of universities not being completely i would say transparent about this not being like a kind of um you know a practical skill you can learn and then just get employed in and it's quite strange how many courses there are now because i think students young people here oh programming i want to do that and they go on the course and then they find that there's hardly any jobs, you know, and I think then often maybe you might get into different spaces, but that precarity is, is, a, is a strange thing, and it's also something which, like, you know, is a bit, again, I feel un uncomfortable about. But the other thing as well, which I find, which I also feel uncomfortable about, but I also feel somewhat optimistic about, is that in the UK, at least, because of the kind of, I would say, decades of kind of, you know, ignoring how white and middle class a lot of the institutions are now it seems like every institution is trying to hire as many people of color as, as, as possible and my institution Barbican for example over the last year has 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 changed dramatically and you know it's a, it's a strange thing because even myself I've been given jobs or positions on juries or whatever that a I'm, I'm definitely qualified for but I'm also aware of the fact that I am someone of color and maybe there aren't so many people of colour doing some of this work and so there's a kind of tokenism occurring out of a kind of guilt of not 
addressing these things for a long time as well. So there's just two points that I think is very apparent in these kind of spaces at the moment, which, again, there's no answer to or fixed position on, but it seems like it's very much part of, you know, how lots of people are thinking about um, this kind of work, I think, in a kind of London-specific space. Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned, uh, Matthew, this trending, right, quote-unquote, uh, of, of people of culture, let's say, whether we want to say people of color or not, um, which also extends, obviously, to who's hired, is, is it a man or a woman, who, or someone that identifies as a man or a woman, who's, you know, what films are being selected and what percentage is, is that director or creator identifying as a man or a woman. Um, we can extend that to obviously sexualities and, and we're sort of clearly in this moment where institutions know that they need to open up. Um, but it is a difficult line to toe because it can always, not always, but it can often, I want to say, come off as virtue signaling, right? While on the flip side, um, if people of culture do not have those opportunities, however they can get them, they don't have those opportunities, right? <laughs> so that, you know, we can't discount that also. So it's it's kind of a tricky moment that we're in. It's, But I guess it should be tricky and it should feel scary to a lot of people because there is change and, and change is coming. Change always comes, whether we like it or not. Uh, how we navigate that is, I guess, what's important, how we sort of negotiate those changes. Um, again, it's about power also, who has the power to make those changes and and who's the subject of the change, right? Who's sort of represented by the change. We're gonna get into representation in just a little bit, um, but I wanted to come back to, again to career prospects because both of you sort of touched on it a little bit. Um, this is a very practical question. You know, how do you find work? There's a lot of work out there, but at the same time, there's not a lot of work out there. Or maybe there's a lot of positions out there, but there's a lot of people that would sort of stand in line for those positions. Matthew, you talked about this sort of new wave of film curating courses at universities which kind of has the ring of a slightly vocational angle to it, just in, in fact of the speed at which they've appeared. I have hopes that they'll develop into something really you know, broad and, and, and nuanced and considered in terms of lines of inquiry in the academic space. But how do you both get jobs? Do you, are you invited places? Do you have ideas and you sort of seek out places and institutions and collaborators? How do, you, how do you get the work that you get versus how do you pitch and, and find the work that, that you want to get? That's an open question for both of you, obviously. It's, um, for me, it's a mix of people recommending me for things, me applying to things. And yeah, I think that's pretty much it. And um, the Programmers of Color Collective has actually been great there. Um, job vacancy sections is really changed changed my life really I'm like this is the only list that I'm on that shares you know jobs that could be relevant um otherwise I just hear about things through word of mouth which you know also is something that I think is the same for many of us a, a big part of your job is actually your social network um and so a lot of the jobs come that way um yeah so applications and being recommended to things i think are, are the two main ways to get jobs but meeting people um and in in some other cases there are projects that i'm really excited about and i just pitch those so last month there was an artist 
visiting whose work I love, Joao Vieira Torres, and I wanted to show the work. So I reached out to Spectacle Theater in Brooklyn and I was like, can we show these? And they were like, okay, yes, do it. Uh, but of course, this is free labor. Um, so the non-free labor, the paid labor comes from actual jobs where, yeah, you're hired by some institution or the other. Yeah, I mean, I think um, it's similar to what Ali was saying, really. There's uh, positions that, you know, I've applied for and got, and then there's, you know, positions that come out of, you know, a, again, a kind of the culture of kind of what we're doing, really. And I think, for me, it's not necessarily a niche, but having things that I feel like I I do, you know, know about. I, I don't know the word expert, but, you know, I do... I do understand that I, I get then I think that some of these opportunities open up and I think that um what's what's been good about being kind of spread across say academia and then more curating is that um you know so there are jobs like whether it's like teaching you know on courses and sometimes that will last that will be you know um teaching a module for six months that's great, you know, that, that, like, these little bits of work, I think, all add up, you know, and I think that, you know, for me, like, being out there, speaking to people, meeting people, and then these opportunities start to build up, really, and I think that there's, that's the kind of benefit, in a way, of having, I guess, these cultures or these spaces that people do kind of know you and kind of understand kind of what, what you're doing, and then they, you know, get in touch and stuff as well. And again, without being too negative about it, I do think, again, in the London context, that some of these things are, is that push and pull, because I think that I've been invited to take part, to, to teach or take part in juries, partly because I'm saying, you know, I don't think that they have a huge amount of candidates of colour, and because I am qualified to do all this work, you know, without being beheaded, I've been doing this stuff for like 10 years, that, like, I am, you know, regularly being offered to do to do things, and I think that that yeah it's that it's that kind of weird thing and I guess now what's good as well is that you know it's if there's things that I think I also trying to again go back to collaboration bring other people into them by saying like you know this person you maybe you should ask this person or maybe you should ask this person or maybe this person will be a good person to to approach as well but yeah so there's jobs that come up and you apply for but there's also the things that come out just through your through your networks which which again can be really interesting and, and can be international and um, yeah, I don't do so much pitching to be honest because I kind of work it for two kind of in, two institutions. So generally speaking, the things that I kind of want to do, I can generally kind of do under those spaces. And partly because again, I do teach a little bit as well. So it's kind of also not doing too much. So for now, I'm not I'm not pitching so much. But I think at the same time, there are spaces once you get your foot, once you do know who these people are, there are you know those paths are open ultimately. Well, let's talk a little bit about passion uh, as as an element of this culture of curating that we that we practice. So, what? So, Alia, you mentioned this filmmaker that you just you know you really love, you believe in, you really want to share share their work with a wider audience. You know who to go to to pitch the idea. There's no money, right? But you do the idea anyway, right? You do the thing anyway because it means something to you. It nurtures your soul. That you want to nurture the audience. So let's. Let's talk about this passion for our work, right? Because that can be a very also controversial topic, right? There'll be a whole sort of cohort of people that will say, whoa, wait a minute, alarm bell. You shouldn't do that work for free. That's just going to perpetuate the problem. 
you should be paid for this work, whatever you're going to be paid. But then there's another cohort of people that would understand uh, that passion and that need to, to show that work. You know, we're dealing with art and, and, and culture and, and passions can, can flame sort of very highly as, as they should. And I know in my own sort of work and in my own sort of process of, of dealing with artists, and if there's, there's somebody I believe in and there's works that I believe in, I'm going to get that program done by any means necessary, right? Sometimes I might have to take an L uh, in terms of pay or, you know, being able to earn anything. Uh, but I'll figure out a way to balance that, right? Because that passion is so important to me. So how do you balance the, the passion of, of what you do versus these, these career prospects? How do, you, how do you sort of negotiate that balance of, of, of institutions maybe counting on you, right? Counting on us to have that passion and to be able to do this work, knowing that it's not well paid, but they're going to do it anyway because they love it and they're ethically principled, and they believe in these artists, and, and you know, they're, they're optimistic about the situation, that they can sort of intervene in the status quo. How do, you, how do we navigate that, uh, those sort of passion prospects, let's call them? Yeah, I think before pitching this program to Spectacle, I hadn't done free labor for at least three years, which is an achievement, and it had to be a deliberate decision. So I think in general, I'm, I think the camp that says, you know, no, don't do this work for free. Uh, it hurts everybody else. I think they're onto something. And I think um, we, like our passion, both as like curators or artists and filmmakers is the reason or is one of the reasons why it's so easy for us to be underpaid. And it's so easy for people to approach you asking for work, but not offering any kind of compensation because, hey, you're an artist, you love what you do. Um, so I think some sort of collective action on that front is um, extremely necessary, I think. Um, I don't know how we can think of like, I don't know, a global union for film people. Like, I don't know how that works, but I think we need something like that so that we can keep our passion because eventually, when you realize that your passion and your love for film is making you poor or allowing other people or institutions or a broader system to exploit you in that way, it also affects your passion, right? You start questioning the things you love. And that is the thing we need to protect the most, our love for what we do. And in order to do that, I think there has to be some sort of action that we can take regarding pay and labor conditions and you know the even people who have full-time jobs at festivals can just get fired overnight so you know there there is definitely a lot of work to be done on that front so we can keep our passion is what i think yeah no it's interesting i mean i i agree completely i think even people who have you know not, not just even people who have full-time jobs can get fired but also even people that have these jobs i mean if i actually try to sit down and work out how much I'm doing on top of what I'm being paid for, then you know the actual time I'm being paid will be really, really minimal. And I think for me, the difficulty is is that you know it's that passion, but it's also to go back to I think what the the slogan was at the Flirty where I met Greg, like what's necessary really, because I again I'm sure that if um, say I was doing less in any of my jobs, then the projects that I was working on wouldn't, wouldn't happen. And then it's, it's, it's frustrating to a certain extent. 
because it does you know affect your mental health it affects your workload it affects everything to do with you know your your existence and it is unsustainable but it's you know i don't know really like it some of these things are necessary and they wouldn't happen if you weren't doing them and then I like to think without being too naive that at a certain point like some of these things can balance out like if you're doing like some projects that are maybe you know underpaid then you know over the course of two three years like you know you might meet people you might there might be something out of it which can at some point become monetized I'm not being naive at all I'm just saying that like doing this work you know it does have um, effects as well, you know, and I don't think it's too naive to say that, like, you know, when I've done stuff for, for free or done stuff where I'm underpaid, like, I've, I, I've managed to get things out of it without being too cynical, but whether it's relationships or just, you know, experience, you know, because there is that other issue as well about, like, um, whether it's collective working and stuff, that sometimes, you know, you can create jobs for yourself as well, and I know it's not I'm trying clearly, I'm trying not to be naive and not to just, you know, exacerbate the problem. But I think that, you know, there are lots of different kinds of working methods and I think it's true we do need to be strict about these things as well. But I think by creating alternative practices as well, we can also circumvent institutions because I also think in the UK, what's been interesting in the last six, seven years is that we've seen this rebirth of the collective and at a certain point in the UK, 70s, 80s, you know, there's lots of public money in collectives but that went away but now there's lots and lots and lots of, of what I would say like young collectors who are doing things cross arts who are getting bits of money from different arts councils and stuff and there are there are, there are emerging different ways of working I'm not sure that everyone's being paid as much as they should be but there does seem to be people and different methods out there as well but it's very complicated and it's, 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 it's tough but I always feel like you know if I'm not doing something, it wouldn't get done, and then that kind of that kind of passion or, or that necessity is what I end up I don't know continue, coming back to really trying to decide like that that limit really like if I wasn't doing this, would it get done? And if the answer is no, then it's something that you know ultimately has to get done. Well, I can say I'm all the way here for the rebirth of the collective. I'm here for alternative methods and practices and alternative institutions. I'm here for that always. Um, we're talking about ethics now, and I would consider ethics an important element of, of my idea of what a culture of film curating is or, or should be or how to develop maybe a culture of, of film curating, a culture around film curating. So let's speak maybe just a little bit more about ethics. I would love to hear from both of you. Um, if, if we were to speak about ethics, what are those principles that are important to you? And, and we know how to hold institutions feet to the fire generally in, in terms of the ethics that we would expect them to to practice and exhibit toward us, the cultural workers that, that sustain their, their profiles and, and their missions. But how about you both as curators and the way you deal with artists and maybe also the way you deal with institutions, the way you deal with artworks, the way you deal with audiences, uh, what are those ethics of, of curating that you, that you like to hold dear and that you would like to practice that you hope would sustain you in your work? I think this is the one that is quite a difficult question. I think in relation to audiences i think that that's now more than ever it's always been a big issue is something that is i'm really concerned with particularly because in one job i'm working in a you know a public cinema and you don't always know who's coming to to your spaces and i think that as opposed to 
when working in public space such as the Barbican Centre, I am I do feel very uh, cautious about certain uh, films or certain objects because I I think that everything has a space to be shown, but maybe this particular space isn't the place to show everything. You know, so without getting too much detail, there's been incidents where I've been censorship is not the right word, but you know, very reluctant to to put things on. Because you know we're living in a in a really strange space where you know people things are people are really susceptible to human people certain images don't need to be seen again ultimately you know and I think that again it it goes back to another kind of ethic of curation which is you know trying to trying to expand the corpus trying to expand what is shown trying to you know recreate canons and I think that at this point in time I think that some things don't need to get shown for the, you know, 100th time and certain, you know, images or certain kind of themes, whilst interesting or engaging or important, you know, can, there's other objects out there that can be shown that can, you know, that maybe are more necessary or more, you know, have more um, validity or more kind of like, uh, what's the right word I'm looking for? I don't know, I feel like I've, I've surprised myself by being a tiny bit more cautious because you know, I don't want people to come to the cinema and then be exposed to something that they weren't, they didn't know was there. And that part of that is just being clear about to audiences what you're showing. But at a deeper level, I think that you know, with certain images of violence or you know, racialized violence or sexualized violence, you know, I'm, I'm not. I mean, I, I'm quite. I'm more cautious now than I think maybe I would have thought I was in certain spaces. In that, in certain academic spaces, I think it's a bit different because I think it's a bit more what are these images about what do these images mean and you can be really critical and you can really get into it you know whereas like in a public cinema you know where you have a screening at 6 and a screening at 8.30 there's a kind of a, a, a limitation of the time you have to sort of talk about stuff whereas I think in certain spaces like you know in my academic spaces you can be you can devote 5-6 hours to unpacking what these images mean how these images affect us and I think in certain public cinema spaces I've got no I've got no interest in you know doing those things in those spaces because it's 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 I'm not sure how people react and I've had some really negative experiences even in the last year and a half of audience members being really upset with things that they've seen or complaining about things not being necessarily framed in a certain way I think, yeah, I think it's something I'm really concerned about at the moment. But the, the main ethical thing, I think, which relates to practice is just this desire to, you know, expand canons, expand, you know, corpuses, and to be as really kind of expansive as possible in terms of what's being shown. And sometimes that can be at the expense of so-called provocative works, which, you know, speak to a certain kind of, I don't know, narrative which has been explored previously as well. So, so I'll stop now because I think I'm rambling a little bit. But in short, I feel like I'm quite cautious about this question of like you know sharing stuff in, in certain public spaces um matthew thank you for bringing up this issue of censorship um because i've been i've been thinking about it for quite some time so i think for me to to answer your question greg the tricky most challenging part of this is basically being true to my own politics and by that i mean um I'm, I'm keeping this deliberately ambiguous, uh, but when there are institutions or people that you don't, not only do you disagree with politically, but 
institutions and or people who if you collaborate with or if you work with you'll be going against your own ethics uh if we can call it that um and that is one of the hardest decisions to make and very challenging to maneuver uh because on some level you have to be pragmatic but also you need to maintain your self-respect um so it's always a balance between these two and this just to make this a bit clearer, this could have something to do with like tokenism, for example, you know, and, and it's something that Matthew spoke about earlier. But like when, if you know that this institution, a particular institution is not really into diversity, they're just doing this for show, uh, do you continue to work with them and give them the legitimacy they are basically taking from the fact that you're working with them or do you not? Uh, another example would be on the question of Palestine, for example. Um, you know, as do you work, do you, how do you practice boycott the investment sanctions if you are, you know, um, if you believe in BDS as a curator, how do you do that? So these are like some difficult political questions uh, that I find myself having to um, navigate. I haven't found the perfect formula yet but I think that so far I haven't really done anything that has made me that has made me unable to sleep at night so I think it's whatever I'm doing it seems to be working but yes it's, it's definitely a very hard the very challenging question yeah so the politics of of what we're involved with and and what we do our personal politics uh and navigating those vis-a-vis institutional politics um this is all obviously very important and I think key to, to, to discuss now in terms of this, this idea of curating and, and culture. So yeah, we talked about, you mentioned Palestine. We talked earlier about, about Haiti, um, decolonization, right? And that's, that's sort of the, the word that, that comes to mind that, that's on a lot of people's minds right now in art and culture. We, we have representation on one hand, but also decolonization and sort of cries of, of, of the need to decolonize, whether that be decolonizing minds or literally decolonizing institutions, decolonizing film canons, so on and so forth. So you, you both spoke a little bit about it, but, but how do these concerns impact your work and, and sort of what you're asked to do? I, I kind of wanted to dive into that just a, a tiny bit more. Um, again, this idea of representation and sort of where we are at. We, when I mentioned we, just this inclusive we, uh, you know, people of culture that are sometimes asked to, to represent or to perform certain, certain aspects that, um, that people maybe feel are decolonizing on the surface, maybe not so much. Um, and the work that we do and the artists that we select and the way that we put programs together, um, what does decolonization mean to you in, in your work and, and, and how does it impact your work or, or what do you feel still needs to be decolonized in the work that we do? Yeah, for me, uh, I think that it's one of those things that affects everything that that you know I, I'm doing actively, consciously and subconsciously. I think that all of the programs, all of the kind of figures I'm presenting, all the people I'm working with, I think are all part of these kind of questions ultimately. Because I think, you know, even when working in a big institution and what Ali was saying is it's a real it is a real issue, I think, that practically, you know, all of the programs that I'm doing and all of the people I'm working with, I think I'm trying to, you know, build networks or work with people who I think are also 
moving in these directions, you know, and without getting into too much detail, you know, like working with um, different institutions, small institutions, community institutions, collectives working in specific spaces, independent curators, artists who've been, you know, who've fallen out of, who were either weren't in this kind to begin with, or who kind of coming from different spaces that haven't necessarily been, um, you know, as represented or as visible in, you know, in these spaces before. These are all the things that I'm constantly thinking about. It's, it's a lot of the time, either it's being explicit about it from the offset or just, you know, I mean, with film, what's useful is that when necessary, you don't necessarily need to throw these terms into everything you're doing. You know, if I'm showing films, you know, if I'm showing films about labour, then I can have all of the films just explicitly be about these questions of colonialism, but there doesn't need to be in there either because, you know, there's lots, there's lots of different ways of presenting these works. But for me, it's something that I'm always thinking about. But it's a real dilemma as well because, you know, sadly, the amount of institutions or spaces that I would say I trust in that I occasionally work for are quite small. But that being said, you know, having access to these spaces, I think, is, is really important, you know? And I think that, like, I see it with who I work with, I see it with who comes into these spaces, I see it with the conversations that we have. And again, it, it is a back and forth because I don't want to, you know, I don't want to help shift the image of this institution. But then at the same time, I'm not going to work for this institution forever either. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm passing through. And whilst I'm there, I think there'll be things that are interesting and people that will benefit from these things as well. But, you know, I'm not, I'm not a lifer in that, in that regard. You know, I still see myself as an independent figure. And I happen to be at this space now, but that doesn't mean I'm going to be there for X amount of years. So while I am there, you know, I want to kind of get do as much as possible. And, um, yeah, so for me, it's something that is, is a part of my everyday, ultimately, whether it's conscious or non-conscious. Yeah, I, I mean, I was thinking... Um about this question because uh, Greg you and I talk about it a lot and we also and I have these conversations with many other friends and colleagues and I think not to sound too Marxist uh, which I'm not but I think we or I personally can't really think about a decolonization that does not start from the money from the funding from the means of production like okay we can include more films by certain by filmmakers from certain groups but who's making these films and and how do these filmmakers where do these filmmakers go to get money to make their films and where are their distributors where are the sales agents like that the center of the economy itself you know keeps reproducing these conditions that are at best neocolonial um and i think as curators or programmers working at like the last stop in the life of the film that being the moment where it gets screened and shown and shared with audiences there are things we can do but if we're talking about like a, a real um meaningful um tactic i think would like an area of focus should be or would be funding um and then there's also the question of you know the the, the festival circuit quote unquote um that it, the flow seems to always be like south-north, you know, like from, I don't know, Haiti to France, from Egypt to Germany, uh, from Brazil to New York. So the direction of these flows, I think, is also another area in which we can possibly do something. So 
For example, uh, one of my good friends and a brilliant programmer, Janina Oliveira, and I have this dream uh, to do like a film program in Rio, Cairo, Haiti, and Martinique, for example, and to start, you know, to, to figure out different routes of movement, whether of films, of filmmakers, of institutions, south-south, basically, bypassing the center in at least in terms of the, the direction of the flow in that particular program, for example. So it is a, it's definitely a pressing question. And I think about it a lot. Sometimes it gets exhausting, to be honest, because it's such a big, deeply rooted structural issue. And I feel like that while representation is important, it should not, the conversation should not stop there. Like decolonization, decolonizing the film canon, for example, for me, can't mean, yes, okay, let's have a few films from, you know, an African country, a few films from an Asian country, a few films by indigenous people, and yay, we have a decolonized film canon. I don't think that this is how things work. Uh, I feel like it's a step forward, but, it's, but the conversation needs to continue because it shouldn't end there. And I feel like sometimes, unfortunately, it does. Like when you put a, when you create a film program or put together a film festival and now people do the statistics, you know, like how many uh, filmmakers of color, gender, uh, race, et cetera. Uh, but this is still not enough. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's really beautifully said. And, and this is a topic that we could go on, obviously, for a whole other program. But I want to sort of bring things to a close, but, but I want to, to close on, on this idea of dreams uh, that you mentioned, uh, Alia, in, in a very sort of practical sense. Just uh, I'm interested in, in, in both of your, your, your hopes and, and dreams for, for this particular work that you're doing. I mean, it could be really specific related to these programs that you both uh, mentioned at the beginning, whether it's the, the actors that you're focusing on for a retrospective, Alia, or Matthew dealing with the, the Haitian Revolution, which is obviously a really important topic. What, what are your, your hopes and, and dreams for the work that you're doing? It could be as simple as, you, you know, you're hoping that you get this film or you're hoping that your 16 millimeter projector is gonna work or that you'll even have access to one, or you're hoping that this artist will be able to get this visa and will be able to travel to this country where you're doing a show, or you hope to sort of reach a certain audience. But I, I'd be curious to, to end with, with some of your hopes and dreams for the things that you're involved with right now, whether they be very practical and, and minor um, or very larger and, and conceptual and, and philosophical. I know me particularly, I'm, I'm always hoping and, and dreaming for, for the chance to do more challenging projects, um, the chance to sort of surprise myself and maybe surprise people that would invite me to do something thinking they know what I'm about or, or what I would be interested in. Um, and I'm always sort of hoping and, and dreaming for for larger technical uh, abilities, whether that be the spaces I'm doing work, whether that be the type of work that I'm showing. Um, but I'm just always hoping and dreaming to kind of stretch myself out and, um, and be as, as, as complex and, and unique as, as I hope I can be and, and sort of following the artists and, and the work and, and, and sort of bringing, bringing these unique things to audiences. So those are some of my hopes just to, to continue challenging myself and, and to be hopefully given the space and the budget to challenge myself. But I would be curious to hear from both of you some of your hopes and dreams as we close this wonderful discussion. 
<laughs> Greg, I like that you ended with the budget. I think I'm just hoping in to say that, yeah, I think my dream is for Janina and I to get the money to do this program. Uh, and basically to for there to be some sort of infrastructure that supports South-South collaborations um, as opposed to only South-North collaborations. So like, I don't know how that could happen, who could make this happen. It doesn't happen enough, I can say that. But yeah, that would be my dream, you know. Um, yeah, I think. And to find the copies, of course, for us retrospective. Wish me luck. Thanks. I mean, um, at the moment, uh, first of all, I think I, part of my dream is I want Alia's dreams to, they, those things are like two things that need to happen, you know, and um, I hope they happen very much so. And, you know, for me, in a very really practical, selfish level, you know, I'm in the middle of just finishing this thesis that I've been doing for like way too long. So at the moment, I just want that to be finished and then I can move on with my life. And I think, um, yeah, I still think, I think that as a dream, I think, you know, I'm very much still, I'm learning ultimately, you know, and I think there's lots more to learn and I want to be, I hope that I'm able to continue to kind of collaborate and to learn and to kind of, you know, hopefully, um, you know, develop some sustainable practices across these kind of this, this journey. Um, yeah, I think it's a really nice question. I'm glad. I'm glad that I didn't. I didn't really. I wasn't expect, expecting that, but that that was a nice question, Greg. Thank you. Well, thank you, and thank you both. And I'll I'll add an extra hope for for myself. I uh, hope I'll see you both soon. It's been a while. I'm looking forward to to seeing you both in whatever city, at maybe doing a program at whatever institution. But I'm looking forward to, to reconnecting with you both IRL. Until then, we'll, we'll stay uh, on this virtual plane. And, and I'm thankful that we at least have that. Uh, thankful for both of you being part of this conversation. Thank you again and to Doc Leipzig, Programmers of Color Collective, Kino Pravda Institute. Uh, I feel very fortunate to, to steward such a rich and, and important discussion. And I'm, I'm very much fans of both of you and the work that you're doing. And I'm really excited to, to see what you'll do in the future. And again, looking forward to, to collaborating with you both and seeing you both sometime soon. Uh, yeah, that's it. I'll, I'll sign off. And thank you to those in the audience who have listened to us. And all the best.